Good morning. This week, we continue to look at our letters to the seven churches of Asia. And we, this week, we come to a letter that is written to Sardis. Now, Sardis, it's an interesting place. It's got a rich history that is well documented back as far as 2000 BC. We won't be looking at all of that today. However, it is worth looking at a few snippets uh, for various reasons, just for interest and because some of the things in its past mirror slightly what's going on in the letter to Sardis. Now Sardis had been a place of great wealth and prosperity, with some of the first coins of gold and silver having been minted there. In fact, the nearby river Pactolus was rich in gold and silver. Its location on the intersection of routes made it a great place to trade, which it did well trading jewellery and precious stones, as well as garments that benefited from the fact that Sardis was known for being one of the first places to really perfect the art of dyeing wool. Add to that the local geography of Sardis, that the main city was built on top of basically a huge cliff, and on three sides that scaled up as high as 1,000 to 1,500 feet, it meant it could be easily defended, leaving the soldiers to concentrate all its efforts on just the front-facing side of it. It was believed to be in a secure position. However, in 549 BC, the city was besieged by the Persians, and Cyrus offered a reward to anybody who could find a way out the cliffs. As his soldiers surrounded the city, one of them noticed a Lydian soldier drop his helmet over the side and then climb down using footholds and cracks that had formed a pathway that was invisible from the ground. He retrieved his helmet and climbed back up. The watching soldiers, they made a note of this route and took the city like a thief in the night as they had gu- hadn't guarded that vulnerable area. Years later, history repeated itself. In 214 BC, the city was taken again in the same way. By the Seleucid Empire, as they entered through the unguarded cliffs, again, their position seemed so secure, they didn't bother to keep watch, and once again were caught napping. Now, by the time we get to the letter in Sardis, the place was in somewhat decline from its previous splendour. It was doing okay, but the extravagance of his past had somewhat gone. To some degree, it was living off its past glories. And then so on to the letter. Well, this letter once again opens with a statement about the writer and whom it's to. Like the other letters, it's to the angel or messenger or the one who will give the message contained in the letter to the church. And in regard with the credentials of the sender, as of all the other letters, he gives a different aspect of himself. This time, he says, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits, or the sevenfold spirit of God. Now to flesh out, we might read from Zechariah 4, where in a vision he sees a lampstand with seven lamps coming out from it. And when Zechariah asks the angel what it means, the angel replies in verse 6, this is the word of the Lord, in context he says to Zerubbabel, not by might or power, but by my spirit, 
says the Lord Almighty. And then again, we look to Isaiah 11, 11, where it says, A shoot will come out for the stump of Jesse. From his root, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. We see here the word is of the Lord and that the spirit itself has many aspects. And I'm sure that is an exhaustive list. That combined with the other translation that says the seven fold spirit represents wholeness or completeness. We see here Jesus state his credentials as Jesus who has the spirit of the Lord Almighty. Basically the Godhead. As to the context of the letter, well, ouch. It's to the point and pulls no punches. With the opening line of, I know the things you do, that you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. We often make judgments based on a reputation. We hear positive reports about people or corporations or diets or services. You might choose your broadband based on what you hear a few people say about it. I'm with them and they're all right because of this, this and that. You only find out for yourself when you try to get on Zoom and struggle or you decide to stream a movie in your face with nothing but little circles spinning around in the middle of the stream. It can be incredibly frustrating. And of course, our own reputation can be very important to us. Get a bad one in the eyes of others, it can affect every aspect of your life, making it difficult to form friendships or even do business. But for Sardis, that's not a problem. You see, they had a great reputation. All around them thought they were doing just fine. And that is a clue to the problem. Why? Because all around them in Sardis were not Christian. The area around them had all you would expect in an area in those times with pagan and Roman influence. There were many practices and many gods worshipped. In archaeological excavations and studies of the ruins of the buildings there are further clues to what was happening in the area. On the pillars in the synagogue, the names of Jewish believers have been written unusually in Greek. Why? Well, it'd be very unusual for a name to be written in Greek if you were Jewish, because in the Jewish culture, the name speaks to the identity and therefore the lineage of the person. It was very important to them. A compromise? Or well, just not that important. Add to that, a Roman eagle carved on the side of an altar and other Roman angles, animals showing loyalty to the Roman emperor. And Lydian symbols incorporated also in around the building remains. In the marketplace, stalls remain, some with a Christian cross on them, showing the stallholder was Christian side by side with stalls that had Jewish symbols on them and other stalls with other symbols on them. This was in the shadow of the Roman gyms and the Roman baths and all that would go on there and if you look into Roman history, that could be certainly not Christian things going on there. It would be unusual to be so close. 
In other areas, Christian persecution had begun. Yet somehow, in this setting, they had a good reputation. If the church in Sardis could operate in this environment and keep a reputation for being alive, then could their faith be compromised? Don't forget Jesus said, but you are dead. Wake up. Now in Ephesians chapter 2, it says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live, when you followed the ways of the world and the rulers of the kingdom of the air. The spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Had the believers of Sardis just slept, walked into some kind of apathy and their faith not creating any impact on the people around them? Not standing up or out in any way? Not causing any offence? Perhaps they were even doing the things they should have cast off. Had they failed to guard themselves because like those before them, they felt so secure. You see, like some of the other churches mentioned in the letters, they had no name calling, no liars, no Balaam, no Jezebel, no deep secrets of Satan and no synagogue of Satan. Without any obvious persecution of their own and, and their own easy attitude, they were not clinging to Jesus' teachings. Letting things and pagan culture around them bleed in. When Jesus is saying there are a few who have soiled their garments, he is also basically saying that most have. Sin had crept in. Even though they looked like a church and were doing all the stuff. You might think of all the things we do here in a church. But is Jesus present in it? They were probably also doing things they ought not to and failing to do that which they should be doing. Thus Jesus gives this warning to wake up, strengthen what little remains and is about to die. For even the deeds they did have were falling short of what God had expected from them. What an awful report Sardis was getting. Sardis at that time isn't so different to the world we live in now. We also live in a world with many different views on what is correct. Many reject normal Christian beliefs as being wrong or even offensive. There is often a background pressure to dilute what we believe in the name of not upsetting somebody else or fitting in. Was the modern word we hear all the time is these days, being tolerant. Ironically, the people that accuse us of that are often not being tolerant of what we believe. How we can conduct ourselves in our relationship and our commerce can likely have a choice of different approaches. Do we stick to our principles and risk creating a stir with the crowd keeping our good standing with those around us at the expense of our faith? We must stay awake, alert and examine ourselves to make sure that we are not found wanting in the sight of God. And that is a challenge that we must all face daily. But what if we do that and we find out we've blown it? Then what? Well, we'll come back to that in a minute. Hi, so before the break we were looking at Sardis and we were looking at firstly the 
bad report it had and uh, how they weren't doing so well. How they'd been told to wake up. And then we looked at, and we were starting to look at, but what if we come to a similar point where, like Sardis, we feel that maybe we've blown it. And then that's where we're going to make a slight switch. You see, as much as this is a hard-hitting letter, bizarrely, this letter is also something of a love letter. Appropriate for the fact that this is going out on Valentine's weekend. Now, you may not think it's like any love letter you've ever received, and I think you're right. But we're going to look at that now. Now, firstly, because if we read in Hebrews chapter 12, it says that, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines the ones he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as a son. It's a verse we see mirrored in Proverbs 3. Now secondly, because he not only gives them a chance to change, but he gives them an example, guidance if you will, from their own experience of how to get there, where he would have them be. Possibly the biggest take home we could make from this today, something we have already touched on, might be the idea that we need to examine ourselves. One of these we often mention is when we take communion, we'll talk about examining ourselves. And uh, in fact, it's a concept that's mentioned many times throughout the Bible, in both the Old and the New Testaments. One verse I'd like to highlight is from Luke, and it's from the prodigal son. You might think that's an odd one to choose. Now the son is looking at the life he's created for himself, and the suffering it brought. And in that verse it describes that when he came to his senses. This for him didn't take much self-reflection as he was hungry could feel all too well the results of his actions. It does however mark the point of him deciding to take a different path and his life uh, and him seeing himself more clearly. For those in Sardis and like us, we are surrounded by other stuff. Our senses get crowded out by the background noise of life in 2021. We don't want to sleepwalk into a shipwrecked faith. We need to make a point of examining ourselves, coming to our senses and then Jesus, as Jesus puts it, to wake up. So this correction becomes not an insult, but an invitation to, be, to put the old behind us and for us to start again. It's a love letter, because when Jesus reminds them with the encouragement that those who do this, those who overcome, will be like those who are dressed in white, those who are doing well, just as if it had always been that way. The key to overcoming is summed up in John 16, verse 33. It says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. We can apply this to anything we are facing, from dealing with a negative response from others to our faith and the hurt that that can create, through to personal struggles, 
or even reoccurring sin in your life. The answer to overcoming isn't just stop and do better. Especially if it's an addiction, like drugs or pornography. You probably already want to stop, but the hold it has over you can make the issue seem to dwarf anything you feel you can do to combat it yourself in your own strength. Jesus says he has overcome the world. And so if we want to overcome something from this world, then we must start from the point of focusing on Jesus. Even when we feel abandoned and ashamed and possibly feel that that is the last thing you feel you were able to do, you, need, you will find the peace that you need in him. And it is in him you will overcome because he already has. It says in Hebrews chapter 4, So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find his grace to help us when we need it most. I'd encourage anyone to look at that full chapter 4 of Hebrews as well. It's great. It's a, it all applies. It's a love letter because he gives an example of what he wants by pointing to something that had already been achieved in the past. And so something that they can do again. Jesus says, go back to what you heard and believed at first. Hold to it firmly. Repent and turn to me again. Once again, we see Jesus reminding them of what they did before and telling them they can do it again. You know, we look back at how we were when we first believed and think, what happened to that person? I know from my own experience, uh, I had very little knowledge, but just the joy of having realised that Jesus was, was real, that he was alive, and having received him, and having that forgiveness, and being able to start again, was huge. It poured out to me in everything I did. Um, I knew very little, but it was just an amazing time, and maybe with some wisdom, it's been slightly muted. We may feel that it's impossible to get back to the light that came on in your heart and your head, but just naturally poured out of you. Yet it's back to that attitude of simple joy and love of receiving Jesus that he points to. The translation in verse 3 can be correctly translated as both go back to what you first heard and believed and go back to how you first heard and believed. Both are correct and in fact used in various translations. The what is of the gospel and the teachings, setting aside any wrong things that we acquired along the way. And the how is as our attitude. It's our coming to Jesus like a child, being unencumbered by the baggage that we picked up along the way. And then finally, the encouragement Jesus gives is the reward for those who are victorious. But they will be like them and never blot out that person from the book of life. That is good news. Because that means that despite the failure of the church in Sardis, even those who had soiled their garments, basically meaning those who had sinned and done wrong, at this time 
still have their names written in the book of life. Whether they get erased is not yet decided. Only rejecting Jesus in this life will get it erased. So as long as you're alive, you have the chance to end up exactly as those who have done well. Your past, no matter what you have done, is not a barrier to being saved and being acknowledged to the Father by Jesus. No matter how far from God you may feel right now, whether you have never come to him before or lost your way in your relationship due to maybe sin in your life or just gone cold, not engaging with him, Jesus is giving an invitation for us to start again. It's an invitation he gave to the church in Sardis and he gives us that same invitation for us now. And so I urge you now to accept the opportunity Jesus gives to examine ourselves and to bring our shortcomings before God. Invite him to come and work on those areas, the ones that you can't fix yourself, so that you do become victorious because Jesus is victorious. And then, as it says towards the end of those verses, it says, Jesus will say, I will announce before my Father and his angels that they are mine. Let's just pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you that we can come before you, Lord. I thank you that you are are wanting us to come before you with our difficulties and our troubles, whether it's for the first time or the 50th time, and that you long to help us and work with us. And Father, I just pray, Lord, that we can all submit ourselves to you and what you would have for us, Lord, and to help us with our walk so that we too can be victorious. Amen.